The Kansas Legislature's regular session for 2023 wrapped up Friday morning at about 4.20 a.m. with a marathon sprint of legislating that included debates about budget, taxes, public education, transgender students, and so much more. Welcome to this week's Kansas Reflector podcast. My name is Clay Wirestone, and I'm the Reflector's opinion editor. To discuss the whirlwind close to the session and the laws that were made or unmade, I'm joined by editor Sherman Smith, senior reporter Tim Carpenter, and reporter Rachel Mepro. Hello to all of you. Hello, Clay. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's start with the end, so to speak. Uh, a 4.20 or so in the morning, close to the session, things got a little loopy, or so I hear. You know, if we sound cranky on this podcast, it's because we're tired and there's no good reason for them to do business this way. Final 48 hours of the session, it's, you know, every two hours they come back on the floor, here's seven more unholy bundles of backroom deals that we've thrown together and nobody's had a chance to read, vote on those, and they come back two hours later and do it all again. This has been a regular feature of the legislature for many years. And the idea is you get late at night into the session, lawmakers want to go home, and you put immense pressure on them to vote for bills. Now, rank and file people don't like it. They don't like it. This is not how they, this is not what they signed up for. However, the people that do are the people in legislative leadership. And because this makes legislating from their perspective a lot easier. Well, and it's my understanding, at least, that this makes it makes the entire first part of the session sometimes irrelevant. Like they've spent literally weeks and weeks listening to discussion about bills, having hearings, doing all of this committee work. And so much of that work is is undone in just these final few hours. Well, the early part of the session, honestly, this is a tradition. It's a very long cocktail bar and buffet line. That's what they do for the couple of weeks when they get here. And there has always been this push of the most substantive things at the end, the budget or a tax bill. But the problem is not just that and having those discussions at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's having 15 bills after midnight. It's taking 20 bills and cramming it into one and expecting legislators and the public, impossible, to figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah. So actually, in in talking about some of the specific issues this session, uh, Sherman, let's start with some of those bills that were bundled together towards the end. And that was a a big batch of tax policy that passed. Yeah. House and Senate finally came together and worked out a deal on a flat tax, something they've talked about all session. Uh, This one is a little bit more mild than other plans, but it would still cost about $330 million a year and as, as a reduction in the in individual income tax that the people pay. Almost all of that coming from the higher wage earners in this bracket structure. Kansas right now has a three-tier system based on your income level. So there would be a flat tax. Um, but to try to get Democrats on board, they added some other things into that. That includes accelerating when the food sales tax would come to an end. That would happen now January 1st of next year instead of January 1st of 2025. Uh, it also includes um, some property tax relief that Democrats wanted. Uh, right now, your first 40000 of property tax value is exempt. This would raise that to 60000 uh, and then the standard deduction on your individual in tax, in, income tax forms um, would increase every year uh, by a 
the the rate of inflation. There'd be a, a cost of living adjustment on that. Um, there's uh, a little bit more of an exemption on social security income that raises from seventy five thousand to a hundred thousand in terms of the income that's exempt. Uh, and then they also accelerate the corporate income tax cuts that are associated with these mega projects of, of incentives that they've given to Panasonic to create a battery plant in DeSoto. Uh, and then Integra is a, a computer chip manufacturer down in Wichita. Uh, under those deals, it was going to trigger a statewide corporate income tax deduction, you know, decrease of a half a percent. They went ahead and just Put those two half percents together, it'll lower it immediately uh, instead of waiting to, to do that. Sherman, I, I presume that uh, the governor has been involved in behind the closed door talks about this kind of stuff. You know, it's it's always a mystery. But then, you know, Vic Miller, the House Minority Leader, came out on the floor before voting on this last night. And he said, you know, I... I went out on a limb here and voted for an earlier version of this that Democrats in the House put together and half the caucus supported. He said, I did that even though the governor told me not to vote for this. But I thought it was the best deal we were going to get, and I think I was right. What we end up with now is not something that he could support, and so he voted against it. All of the Democrats voted against it, uh, except for, of course, the, the Democrat from Kansas City, Kansas, Marvin Robinson, who is now voting with Republicans on virtually everything. And and more on him anon. Um, so, Rachel, I feel like for the entirety of this session, we have heard really heated debates about education funding, education policy. We've heard about vouchers, um, all of all of those kinds of things. And yet for folks who are expecting something big to come from that, uh, late on Thursday or early Friday, uh, not much happened. So tell us, tell us what happened. Tell us, tell us about that. Oh, we're going to start with the bill that didn't get through first. That would be K through 12 education funding for the next three years. Um, that bill was bundled together with about nine other bills. It was a massive, massive piece of legislation. So ultimately, legislators in both chambers decided not to go anywhere with that. So we are still going to be looking for K through 12 education funding, which is fairly important, some would say. But the one um, that was super debated today throughout the night was a voucher program that would allow unregulated private schools to receive state funding. It would also put federal COVID-19 relief funds towards special education. So this narrowly passed the House, and it completely flopped in the Senate. And this was all discussed in the wee hours of Friday morning. Like We were seeing a lot of um, heated debate over public school versus private education, which has been a huge factor this entire session. Some people have said that teachers have been vilified, and they're saying like stuff like, oh, why don't we be funding public education and supporting private schools? But that voucher program did fail. Um, we're still on the lookout for K-12 education funding. And that's going to be something they have to take up when they return on... Uh, April 26th for the veto session. Right. There's a Supreme Court mandate to fully fund and equitably fund public schools. Uh, unlike past rounds of litigation, the Supreme Court a couple of years ago said, we're hanging on to this to make sure you really stick with it. Uh, one of the, the plans that's out there was actually going to cut school funding by a couple hundred million dollars, uh, which would clearly land them back in front of the, the Supreme Court. You know, the the other thing about this voucher program that they were looking at is, you know, they talked about this as school choice, but it was hard to see what choice it really offered to students. 
most of the money associated with this was going to students who are already in private schools uh, or to uh, uh, to reward the people who pulled their kids out of schools for concerns about vaccines or you know books they didn't like in the library, I guess, because it, would, it applied to homeschooling. And I think that uh, in, in half the counties in Kansas, there wasn't even a, there's not even a private school that you could choose to to go to. And I think it was some of the rural Republicans out there who realized that this was going to be very detrimental to the public schools in their area, and that helped torpedo this. Yeah, Rachel, I have to say I was surprised in reading your coverage. Like, there's some real bone deep hostility towards public schools from some of these legislators. Like yeah. they, they're saying some things that, that just really, I mean, I was raising my eyebrows. Yeah. In the midnight debate, we saw a lot of, um, I think a direct quote was that public schools, it's a fail, like it's a failing system right now. Um, public school teachers are failing the kids. And some people have pushed back on that because they're saying the brown back tax experiment and all that really defunded schools over the last course of years. But there's another element to this. All of the public school students undergo standardized testing, and a lot of these kids that would go to private schools or homeschooling and receive some of this voucher money wouldn't necessarily take standardized exams to know whether or not uh, they're receiving a quality education. So it's apples and oranges. And if you're complaining about the public schools, you're never going to get a proper comparison down the road if this kind of legislation would pass. I want to make one other point about the. this is an example of the session is not over until it's over uh, because this was the end of the regular part yes, of the session. Right. But they, push, they, they used to just use the end of the wrap-up to deal with governor vetoes, but now they've got substantive bills that they're going to have to deal with. We've got public school education. We've got uh, they push to the end whether or not they're going to give state employees raises and just big budget issues that are going to come at the very end. I just want to make note of that. Sure. And and Tim, um, to, to follow up with you, um, I think Kansans, everyone across the country was watching last summer as Kansans turned out in droves to reject an anti-abortion amendment to the Kansas Constitution. Uh but that certainly wasn't the end of the discussion about abortion, uh, and it was that topic uh, came up in several bills this session. So what happened there? That's right. That's right. Last August, Kansas voters widely concluded they didn't want to amend the Constitution to give lawmakers the opportunity to ban abortion outright in Kansas. Uh, they want abortion regulated but not banned. So you think maybe some of the advocates, uh, anti-abortion advocates, might sit back on in their rocking chair and kind of take it easy this session. Not true. They came back full bore, and there were three bills that have passed the legislature that could be viewed as anti-abortion. One of them is called the Born Alive Bill. Put that in quote marks. It's where doctors in Kansas would face civil lawsuits and criminal complaints if they didn't provide emergency care of fetuses, quote-unquote, born alive. Uh, in botched abortions. Another bill deals with these anti-abortion clinics or centers that have cropped up in Kansas. Uh, they would be included in a state, a state insurance pool, uh, provide liability insurance for them, and abortion clinics or providers that do uh, engage in abortion would no longer be eligible for that pool. And finally, uh, the last bit of abortion legislation just passed is called the uh, pill reversal uh, bill. And under this, um, abortion opponents want to require 
abortion providers to tell patients that are taking a medication uh, that would end a pregnancy that uh, it's a two-pill regimen that uh, in the middle of this, after taking one pill, apparently, this is the suggestion, that they could stop that process and quote-unquote reverse an abortion. This idea has been debunked by medical professionals across the country, and there's a suggestion that this approach by intervening in this process could actually harm women. So you can see from these three bills that the anti-abortion uh, activists and lobbyists haven't given up, and they, they sort of heard what voters said last August, but they're going to come back for more. You know, I think the language in these bills and these issues are always loaded. They talk about the born alive situation, not because I think many people actually believe this is happening with it, you know, as a real issue. I think it's about pushing this narrative that women are aborting babies that could otherwise live outside of the womb. And it's just not true. Yeah, the language of these abortion bills is is there for a purpose. It's to make all aspects of abortion, no matter the situation, to be this hideous thing uh, that should never occur. You know, most of the abortions in Kansas happen very early in a pregnancy. It's with the abortion pill. Um, these are largely women who have, have had a child before. I mean, a lot of the narratives around this are, are just based on things that aren't true. Clay, you mentioned litigation. The Kansas Supreme Court found in the state's Bill of Rights a foundational element, and that is people had the right to bodily autonomy, which they interpreted as meaning abortion. They had the right to end it. Women had a right to end a pregnancy. So you could easily, on these three bills, have more litigation, get these cases back before the Supreme Court. Uh, Attorney General Chris Kobach did exactly that. He, he, got, uh, he lined up oral arguments on, on some, some abortion laws. Uh, he's the new attorney general, and he wanted to take a crack at it. Uh, he met a very skeptical, skeptical Kansas Supreme Court. And all of this feeds the narrative that we hear from Republicans that this is an activist court and they need to have control over regulating abortion. And they're being denied this opportunity to regulate and, and make the, the practice safe. Yeah, the tension between the three branches of government is never going to go away. And I actually think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, Sherman, uh, one of the things that we've been asked as reflector staff occasionally when we go out is, uh, is there anything that gives you hope? Is there any good news that's coming out of the state house? Um, you've done uh, written several stories about something that actually ended up being a somewhat more hopeful and positive story out of the state house this year. Yeah, I think if there's a, a a set of heroes or champions for this session, it is these women who were child sex abuse survivors who camped out at the state house you know, day after day, week after week, all session long, talking to legislators, trying to find a compromise on a bill that would allow other women, other other men and women, other survivors of child sex abuse like them to file civil lawsuits and criminal cases uh, against their attackers, against their tormentors. You know, Kansas law previously had set the age of 21 once you turn 21, you are unable to pursue litigation. This bill raises it at least 10 years now to 31 for civil cases. It removes the statute of limitations for criminal charges. Uh, and it, it's a, a huge win for them. 
Uh, it's a win that I think a lot of people were skeptical of because of the, the influence of the Catholic Church, which frankly stands uh, to lose a lot of cases if, if some of these things are opened up. But it shows, I think, the there is still real power in people from Kansas telling personal stories, individuals who are not associated with lobbying groups, big money, special interests, just everyday Kansans who can come to the state house and just their presence there, their persistence makes a difference. Well, and I think it's important, Sherman, to to note that there were a couple of things they did in the way that they talked about this issue and the way that they pursued it that I think served them very well this session. One of them was they explicitly, even though, you know, you rightly identified the the Catholic Church as an interested party to, to this bill, they repeated that this was not about uh, any particular church. This was not about any particular organization. This was about preventing pedophiles from getting away with uh, harming children uh, and noting, for example, that a lot of childhood sexual abuse just happens in families. You know, that was the, the story of, of, you know, some of the, the several of the survivors who, who spoke. Um, yeah, we heard that, you know, this idea that it's it's not the scary man in the alley or in the dark woods who leaps out and, and grabs you. These are people who are embedded in our communities in any number of ways. It certainly is not limited to the Catholic Church. It is coaches. It is family members. Anybody who is in a position to, to have regular access to children, mm-hmm. um, they wanted to make that very clear. You know, the church provided a hurdle because they have a lot of influence in the legislature, but it is certainly not limited to them. And then, of course, there was also the uh, the report that was issued by uh, departing Attorney General Derek Schmidt on his last full day in office um, that mentioned it was kind of a summary of a KBI report into clergy sexual abuse and identified that there had been at least uh, 400 survivors that they had identified in Kansas since 19. 19- 50, I believe, and some 200 clergy that they were had looked at. And it didn't name any names, but I think that surprised a lot of people. It did. And survivors pointed to this as an opportunity to to really gain some attention for this issue because there's a, there's a belief sometimes, I think, that these are isolated incidents, just maybe one bad apple here and there. It made it clear that we're talking about hundreds of predators over the course of 50 years. Sure. Well, in the end, I know that even when I was talking to some of the survivors for some of, of my columns, they also just see this as a, as a first step. They, they want to have right. ultimately unlimited civil liability, which some other states have. Yeah, they've so. had to educate people, I think, on this, that the average age of disclosure uh, typically is survivors in their 50s before they're comfortable talking about this. Um, so it's putting the age at 31 is not ideal, but it's a step in the right direction for them. Sure. So, Rachel, uh, from a from an outcome that, you know, a lot of advocates were happy about to one that has been to to an array of bills that has been very challenging for some folks who've shown up at the at the state house. Want to talk about bills affecting the LGBTQ uh, plus community, uh, transgender folks in in, speci- in particular. So, what can you tell us about that? Well, this was not a really good week for LGBTQ rights across the state of Kansas. We'll start with Wednesday's um, transgender student athlete ban. Um, the legislature was able to successfully override Governor Kelly's veto of this. But basically, this would um, affect only one student that we know of in the upcoming school year, and this would be in effect for. 
kindergarten through college. It would basically ban all transgender girls from playing on sports teams through these levels. And advocates have said this is a terrible idea for many reasons. Um, the legislature decided to pass that. Then Thursday night, crossing over into Friday morning, we saw a different bill go through. That one was completely um, read for the first time in the House that night, and it was discussed around 2 a.m. This one would ban gender-affirming care for anyone under the ages of 18 across the state of Kansas effectively. It would revoke um, physicians' license for performing gender-affirming care. So overall, um, yeah, I would say it's not a super good week for LGBTQ rights, including one woman's Bill of Rights, which is um, including like a lot of language that some find objectionable. I think it, that Bill of Rights aims to define women very narrowly in a way to prevent transgender women from being in bathrooms, locker rooms, any public space with them. You know, you, I think you've heard from a number of members of the LGBTQ community. What, how are they reacting to these bills? Not well. I mean, I've been getting texts all morning saying this is heartbreaking, this is gut-wrenching, that sort of thing. Many find this to be a huge setback. I mean, if you look at the testimony from yesterday, um, Representative Myers, who's got like a transgender child herself, was almost in tears at the thought of this. There is a protest, or not really a protest, but some like lawmakers on the House floor stood up to kind of talk about this when it was being passed the first time around. We saw um, Rep. Heather Meyer display her Protect Trans Youth t-shirt on the House floor, and another lawmaker yelled, um, we will say an expletive at a different lawmaker. She felt they were gloating, and um, we heard allegedly that some Republican lawmakers were laughing while they passed this. So, go ahead, Tim. No, I was just going to say that with the opponents of this legislation, Governor Kelly stands with them. And uh, she's uh, vetoed this kind of legislation before, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised if she did again. She did indeed say it was heartbreaking. She also indicated that legislators who voted for this would likely look back on this moment in their legislative career and regret it. Because I think she believes eventually they'll be able to see hard evidence of the damage done. Well, and it's important to note that at least for the transgender athletes ban bill, um, that this was the matter really in the House of Representatives in the override of one vote, that there was one uh, Democratic representative who we've mentioned uh, already today who voted with the um, voted with the majority and allowed the uh, the governor's veto to be overridden and the bill to become law. If he had voted differently, uh, the bill would not have become become law. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Representative uh, Robinson for a second. Yeah, Representative Marvin Robinson from Kansas City, Kansas. I know a lot of Democrats are furious that he seems to have flipped his allegiance here. But I would just point out that there were two Republicans who voted with Democrats as well. And there were 83 other Republicans who voted for this override. It's a little, I think, odd Odd to say that sticking with the party is the measuring stick. I think there are 84 people to blame if you are unhappy with this override. It always puzzles me when those party line of votes occur. Surely, out of 85 whatever House members, there's a handful that would vote for Democrats if left to their own devices. But they get leadership twisting their arms and you end up with these straight party line votes. And so when that doesn't happen in these extraordinary cases, people comment on it. But I think it should be just a matter of routine. We, it can't be so lockstep. Not Republicans, not Democrats. It can't be. 
Well, and let's look at the amount of time that was spent on this sort of legislation compared to stuff like tax plans and everything. That's one of the major critics we've heard about that is that they've been devoting a lot of time to things like this sort of trans athlete ban that would affect one student next year. And instead of like focusing on K through 12 education or tax policies, this is what they've chosen to choose. Like spend yeah, their time this is on. kind of legislation that yeah. gins up uh, the voter base and gets people excited. Maybe they go vote, you know. There's, there's, I don't know if there's good evidence that it works. I mean, we've been doing these town halls around the state where we're taking questions from everyday Kansans who read our stories. And I think in those and just in talking to people, you get this sense of things that people really care about in their personal lives. You know, they, people want Medicaid expansion. They want access to affordable housing. They want medical marijuana to pass. Uh, they are concerned about water issues. Education There's, funding has yeah. been huge as well, yes. You know, nobody says, you know, the thing that's really most Im important in my life is that uh, I make sure that no transgender children are playing with other children. Nobody says, you know, I really would like to see more funding taken away from my public school and put into a private school. You know, nobody... Nobody says they, they want what the legislature is doing on a lot of these issues. They have other needs. The image I get in my mind is a kindergartner who's lining up to kick a soccer ball and suddenly gets yanked out of line and drug off by the principal uh, and, and is going to go get some sort of test to determine uh, gender at birth. I mean, I, I think it's horrifying. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you've we've seen already in just the aftermath to the trans athletes bill passing that some of that backlash has already begun. Speaker Dan Hawkins put out a statement denying that any such, uh, you know, ins inspections would be would be the case. But, you know, when you pass, you know, very broad legislation that doesn't include a lot of specifics about applications, as as this law was, uh People just you kind of have to f figure out as, as you go along what it's going to actually mean. And I don't think we do entirely yet. But to be clear, this is model legislation that was written by faith based groups that hate the LGBTQ community. I don't think they were particularly interested in governing. Um, indeed. So, uh, Tim, uh, one of the things that caught your eye was a bit of back and forth about whether or not Kansas should have a presidential primary. Yeah, so it turns out after a bunch of wrangling, the House and Senate did send Governor Kelly a bill that would uh, have uh, create a situation in which Kansas would have a presidential preference primary in March of 2024. Right now, Kansas has a caucus system. This is where everybody gets together in some meeting hall at uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and they all get in groups, and they give speeches, and eventually you end up with a winner when the votes are counted. This would be more like a regular election. This would be a one-time, one-issue election next March, and it would cost 4 to $5 million. That's one of the negatives to it. Um, Others who don't think it's a good idea suggest that Kansas is sort of irrelevant in this national political uh, contest. Now, the people who think it's a great idea uh, don't worry about the cost. They think it would dramatically increase voter participation because people would be more accustomed to voting on a Tuesday and they could go for, for their presidential preference. Um, I think one of the keys to this legislation was that uh, President Trump in 2016 lost the Kansas Republican caucus to U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. And if he's running for president again and rolls into Kansas, he wants he wants to win Kansas because in two statewide elections, he carried Kansas easily. 
So the caucus system may be not friendly to Donald Trump, and maybe this straight-up election on a presidential primary would be. I was just going to say, in 2020, Joe Biden broke 40% in Kansas. So there's also some evidence that you're seeing some swing voters in places in Kansas more going for Democrats. So there's also just the question of, it's not so much will the Republican win or not, the Republican will almost certainly win, but what is the what is the margin and what's embarrassing or not? Well, in keep Kansas? in mind, these presidential preference primaries are run by the Republican and Democrat Democratic parties. And so each part, respective party will be picking their top choice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if Trump and Biden are in this, I presume that's we're going to spend four million dollars anointing them. Right. Um, Well, one of the things I would like to say here is as we wrap up today is that we have at the Reflector a shared uh, uh, company, as it were, Slack account. When I get to see folks sending messages from the state house uh, every day and every night, and one of the things that has just um, amazed and delighted me over these last few weeks is just seeing how much effort, how much time, how much work everyone on the staff puts in to covering the legislature, especially as we get to these long and grueling days towards the end of the session. And um, I am great fans of all of your work. So thank you so much for coming to talk about it. Thanks. Kind of you to say that. Thank you, Claire.